hello, and welcome to Things That Make You Go Woo. I'm your host, Emily Barnard, also known as Emily and Her Stars. I'm a medium, an astrologist, an Akashic Records reader, an artist, and an all-around just silly and curious gal. In this podcast, I'll be sharing the things and people I find fascinating, funny, and inspirational. Things that I hope will certainly make you go woo, too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. I have to say I'm particularly excited about this episode, and I've been researching it for a little while now. And unfortunately, the more I researched, the further down the rabbit hole I went, which is probably why I'm so late in posting it this month. But I think the wait is going to be completely worth it because what we're going to dive into today is a fairy tale that actually has its roots in a lot of true stories and even a little extra dose of magic. It's all my favorite parts of woo, right? So today we're diving into Snow White, right? Her her story is true, it's gripping, and the best part is that the magic mirror still exists. Now, buckle up because we're going to start at the end, work our way back to the beginning, and get a little bit lost in the middle. <laughs> now, if you haven't seen the classic 1937 Walt Disney Snow White film, here's just a little recap. Uh, it's really, it's an amazing piece of work. It was the first animated full-length movie. And just that in and of itself is quite a delight because this was a feat for the time. However, this story, as you know, there, it's sad. There's a lovely princess made into a hardworking slave by her evil step monster. She lives with these dwarves that take her in and take care of her. There's a prince who saves her. And then, of course, there's the mirror on the wall. Now, for a long time, the brothers Grimm, the Grimm brothers, have been credited with inventing or writing this story. They didn't so much as invent fairy tales. They really just wrote down tales that people had told for centuries. They kind of gathered them like a Google of their day. They were collectors and historians, and sometimes they rolled a couple of stories into one for, you know, more drama, more romance. With Snow White, they took a local Germanic story and added some fables by a wonderful tale collector from Italy, Giovanni Basile. The Grimm's were huge fanboys. <laughs> But honestly, that tale from Bavaria has its roots based even further in the past, actually in ancient Rome. So this scholar and author, Graham Anderson, has found a lot of similarities between Snow White and the ancient Roman legend of Sion, which you can find in Ovid's Metamorphosis, the ancient poem about the history of the world. It actually is 15 books. So if you're bored and can't sleep one night, I highly recommend it. <laughs> now, Sion was the daughter of a brave warrior. I'm not going to pronounce his name correctly, so it's not that important. But this girl, Sion, was so beautiful that not only common people, but also gods fell in love with her. What's more, the girl's name actually means snow in ancient Greek, right? Beautiful snow white. 
super interesting. So one evening, Mercury, the god of communication and commerce and all these things, put her to sleep. And he did as a lot of men do in ancient folktales. He raped her. Maybe he wasn't sure of his manliness. Maybe he just needed an ego boost or whatever. Then along comes Apollo, right? This is the god of art and knowledge. And he's disguised as this old, ugly woman. What could a decent Greek god do but use the opportunity to again rape the sleeping girl? Absolutely ridiculous. I have to say I'm not a fan of the story, but we'll get there. Hey, hang with me. As a result of this gangbang, Sione gives birth to twins. And I mean, this is amazing as it is, right? They're two different fathers. One is Mercury's son and the other is Apollo. Proud, of course, that she has charmed these two gods, Sion was bragging around town that she was more beautiful than the goddesses. That's the kind of thing you just don't say in public, right? So here comes Diana, goddess of the hunt. And she got so mad at Sion showing off that she wanted to punish her. She shot an arrow into Sion's tongue to silence her. And it worked. Yeah, she was dead. She never said anything else again. (laughs) But this is one of the first recorded cases in ancient culture about how looks can kill. Super interesting, right? I do think there are some roots in the later tales that tie into this. Now, I have to say the actual 1812 fairy tale from the Grimm Brothers is very different from what we all know. And it's a story that's pretty grim. (laughs) In short, the stepmother is actually Snow White's mother and wants to have Snow White killed to eat her liver and lungs with salt and pepper. I mean, of course, delish, right? Kill her and as proof that she is dead, bring her lungs and liver back to me. Now, instead, the king kills a boar and brings it back to the queen, serves her this boar's lungs and liver, and the queen thinks it belongs to Snow White, promptly eats it, and everything's good. Snow White is in a glass coffin. The prince is visiting her every day. He's terribly sad. The servants, who get so tired of seeing him angry and heartbroken, actually tug on Snow White until she wakes up. The evil queen finally dies, killed in revenge by Snow White and the prince, who invite her to their wedding and force her to wear red hot iron shoes, which first burn her feet and then force her to dance until she falls dead from exhaustion. Yeah, it's not quite uh, Disney worthy, you can see. (laughs) So clearly we have a few basics for the story already forming. We have someone who is royal or at least associated with royalty. We have someone who is beautiful beyond compare, who men actually just lust over. And we have this jealousy and untimely death. This takes us to our next theory, that of German historian Eckhard Sander, who in his 1994 book, Snow White, Fairy Tale or Truth, actually believes that the entire story is based on Countess Margaretha von Waldeck. Now, she is the daughter of Count Philip IV, and so widely known for her beauty that even official city documents wrote what a stunner she was. 
<laughs> now, Margaretha's mother died when she was just a girl, and her father remarried so he wouldn't end up sad and lonely. His second wife, Katharina von Hatzfeld, was a strict stepmother. She spoiled her own children and was not a fan of having illegitimate children in the house. They weren't viewed as her own and therefore were not worthy. Seeing that this relationship was going to be a problem, Count Philip sent his seven-year-old Margaretha to live in Weilburg with his own uncle, Count Philip III. I guess they couldn't find a decent babysitter in the neighborhood. I don't know. (laughs) Now, at the age of 12, Margaretha is again passed on, this time to her mother's brother. She lived there for about four years in the Netherlands before she was again moved. This time, her father sent her to Brussels, to the court of Mary. Now, Mary was the governor of the Netherlands and the sister of Spanish King Charles V, who was also the Holy Roman Emperor, right? He's like plugging her in to the social pipeline. It really was an idea that she would be some kind of pledge that would improve her father's relationship with the emperor, right? This is a total chess move by her dad. Here's my beautiful daughter. I'm still pretty worthy. Come hang out with me. Well done, Philip IV. Well done. Now, several people from the court started to compete for her affection. Of course, she's gorgeous. She's a stunner, right? Allegedly, she fell in love with the Spanish heir to the throne, Charles V's son, Prince Philip. I know it's another Philip. Hang with me. These two started a romance. Now, there's really no official evidence, but what we do know is that Margaretha didn't marry the prince. Maybe her father was against the relationship because it was politically inconvenient for your faraway child to marry someone of a different religion. But in a few letters she sent to him, Margaretha wrote that her health was declining. At 21, she died of a mysterious disease. According to the Waldeck Chronicles, she was poisoned. Someone didn't like the chance that a German countess could possibly become a Spanish queen. And in fact, historical documents point fingers towards the king of Spain, who pulled a few strings to kill her. That way she's out of the way and not a problem. Although there's really no complete 100% proof to the story, one thing is clear. Margarita's stepmother didn't plot the murder because she died in 1537, which was 17 years before the girl died. There's another similarity, though, with the original fairy tale. Margarita's father owned mines, and most of the workers in those mines were children. So they could be the actual inspiration for the seven dwarfs. Just like in the story, these kids were digging the whole day. Anywhere up to 20 of them would live in a tiny house with a single room in the middle of nowhere. How much of Margarita's life made it into the Grimm's fairy tale, we'll never know. But there are a lot of similarities that are too hard to let go of. Our next contender for the fairy tale comes from that original Italian Giovanni Basile that the Grimm's were such fanboys over. And in Basile's Italian story, it's called The Young Slave. And it's vaguely like Snow White. 
It does have an evil stepmother, but there's a baron instead of a prince. Allow me to set the stage. Here we are in Bavaria. There's a noblewoman named Maria Sophia Margaretha Katarina von Erthel. <laughs> we'll name her Maria Sophia. She was born in the village of Lohr in 1725. And here the locals recorded that she was known for her praiseworthy virtues and her beauty, just like the lovely girl in the famous story. History books from this time call Maria Sophia an angel of mercy and kindness. The town folk absolutely loved her. Now, Maria Sophia's father was Prince Philip and his wife, Baroness von Bettendorf. And when the Baroness died, Prince Philip went on to marry Claudia Maria, the Countess of Richtenstein. Philip marries her in 1743, which makes Maria Sophia approximately 18 years old. And her stepmother, Richtenstein, absolutely hated the children from the previous marriage. In this story, Maria Sophia's stepmother eventually forces her to flee the house, effectively making her a vagabond. She lived for years in the woods adjacent to the mansion, helped by small miners who worked in the mines of her father. That's right, the mines dotted around the castle had children and dwarfs as miners. Larger people didn't fit inside the tiny tunnels. This entire story happens just a short jot away from the famous crystal and quartz mines, where the world-renowned beautiful Bavarian crystal comes from. In addition to having small tunnels that could only be accessed by very short miners, these dwarves, as they've frequently been depicted over the years, often wore bright colored hoods to recognize which group they belonged to or which mining company they were with. And one final piece that really ties this all together is that there are seven hills behind the home, which is believed to be the source of inspiration for the seven dwarves. So here we have Maria Sophia leaving Lore Castle because she cannot stand the abuse of her stepmother, or the stepmother blatantly kicks her out. Both are completely plausible. She eventually becomes blind and spends the rest of her life in the local monastery. She never marries. And after her death, she's buried in a very rarely visited cemetery near the church, which is eventually demolished. Her tombstone was then taken over by a local family who donated it to the city's museum. That's right, in 2019, the tombstone was donated to the Spessart Museum, and you can go and visit it today. What's exceptional is that an unmarried woman who really didn't have a major role in her town other than living in a monastery was even given a tombstone. And ironically, 60 years after she died is when the Brothers Grimm were born just a little bit further south in Germany. So it's entirely possible that they became aware of this story in their youth. But what about the magic and the woo? Here's where it gets really fun. Prince Philip, this would be Maria Sophia's father, owned a mirror factory. 
That's right. Lore mirrors, so mirrors made in the town where she was born, were exceptional in quality, and they were said to tell the truth. They spoke the truth about the way people looked, and they were known as, get this, talking mirrors. Now, the actual mirror that Philip gave his second wife is also on display in this museum, and it is elaborately decorated. What I love is that it's inscribed with messages, like little daily mantras to tell you how beautiful you are. In fact, this custom beauty was a trick mirror that reverberated back the voice of the person who spoke toward it. You can imagine this was pretty advanced technology for back in the 1700s, but it is very real. As you can might imagine, the countess could look in the mirror and say, you look beautiful today. And the mirror would echo it back, you look beautiful today, fueling her self-indulgent nature. On the left side of the mirror, the words amour propre, meaning self-love, were etched. Now, while Maria was never poisoned, there are plenty of tales about elderly gentlemen giving out poison apples to keep children from stealing their orchards. There are stories about her being buried in a glass coffin, which would have been completely feasible for the region region she was born in for them to make a glass coffin. And another idea was that if she was in the glass coffin, no one would want to shatter the glass and bring bad luck. And so she was safe within. All of these tidbits add up to the modern day story of Snow White. However, one thing I really want to dig into just a little bit more is this idea of talking to mirrors, or in another term, scrying, also known as seeing or peeping, right? It's the practice of looking into a suitable medium, albeit water or a mirror, in the hope of detecting significant messages or visions. You might hope to receive personal guidance, prophecy, a revelation, inspiration, But through the ages, scrying in various forms has also been a means of fortune-telling. In ancient Greece, there's the reference to the witches of Thessaly, who used magic mirrors and wrote their oracles on them in blood. The witches, or speculari, would use the mirrors to see the past, present, and future, as well as whether or not they had lipstick on their teeth. (laughs) Mirrors were often believed to take in and store what they reflected to use later. This could be the foundation of the Snow White mirror, right? That here this Bavarian baroness who was obsessed with her own image talked to her mirror and it always spoke the truth in return. In China, mirrors were used to focus and capture energy mostly the moons. Allegedly, one emperor of China became the emperor because of his use of a magic mirror. Xin Shihong, the first emperor of the Xin dynasty in about AD 25, claimed his mirror allowed him to see the inward qualities of those who looked into it and allowed him to make decisions about his empire and ruling that others couldn't. 
Of course, there are mirror superstitions, right? If you break a mirror, you're doomed to seven years bad luck. That idea comes because the Romans believed that life renewed itself every seven years or so. And so you would be stuck with the bad luck until you renewed. Of course, you could get out of this if you gathered all the pieces, placed them in a bag, threw it in a fast flowing river, which would carry away the misfortune. You could also bury it in the soil and eventually something would grow over it and you would be fine. (laughs) In Victorian times, and actually even today in some cultures, when someone has passed in a home, All of the mirrors in the house are veiled to prevent the soul from getting trapped in the mirror or even seeing their reflection and being distracted and not moving on into the next life. Some ancient cultures believe that mirrors reflected the shadow of the soul or the true nature of the person being reflected. And this could be the origin of why vampires don't have a reflection. Mirrors today are made using aluminum powder, but the Egyptians and even those beautiful mirrors made in Germany and Bavaria used polished copper. Copper was associated with the god Hathor, who presides over beauty, cosmetics, love, sex, fertility, magic. Aztec mirrors were made from obsidian, and the Aztecs believed they were linked to Tezcatlipoca, a deity whose name translates as smoking mirror. He was the lord of the night and used mirrors to cross between the earthly realm and the underworld. One thing we know is that we have been making mirrors for more than 8,000 years, whether they were obsidian and stone found in Turkey or polished copper in Mesopotamia or polished stone in Egypt and Central America. Mirrors have been an important part of our culture and always somehow seemed tied to the soul. Mirrors are places where we have conversations with ourselves, where we can look into the deepest parts of our essence that others sometimes don't see. And it's not surprising to think that a part of us gets trapped within that special place. Even Alice in Wonderland took a trip through the looking glass to see what the world was like on that side. Another interesting tidbit about mirrors, the earliest ones that we found have all been in the northeast corners of tombs belonging to women. Why mirrors were associated with women probably has to do with beauty, but no one knows for sure. Were these mirrors used strictly for primping? to make sure that these women could look at themselves? Or is it possible that they were used in rituals somehow? One of the most commonly suggested for the time period is that it was something to do with predicting the future or even understanding the spirit world through reading the images in the mirrors. In fact, the very name taken from the Latin miare is to look at and to wonder at or admire. But no matter what mirrors are made of or what you use them for, they are always going to be objects of mystery, obsession, and even sometimes fear. They're simple, but complex. They're used for purposes both sacred and profane. We love them, yet secretly we don't want to admit it. (laughs) Even the creation of mirrors has been shrouded in secrecy through the ages. At one point, it was 
outright punishable by law to share the secrets of mirror making. For a long time, only wealthy could afford mirrors. But now we walk around with compact mirrors in our purses, in our pockets. We even have a screen on our phone that turns into a mirror. And sometimes when objects become that mundane, they lose some of their luster. But mirrors, wow, mirrors really have retained their ability to hold our attention. They retain the certain amount of power over us. We're still interested in seeing reflections. We can't walk by a mirror or a building or a reflection and not want to just look and see if every hair is in place. If our version of ourselves walking down the street in the future meets our expectations. We no longer bury our dead with hand mirrors like we used to, and we don't often speak of the control a mirror can have over a person. But honestly, we allow ourselves, our perceptions of ourselves to be diminished and altered, to change our happiness. Looking in a mirror is something we do, Women, we just do it. And we're so used to seeing this impulse as a vanity that most of us have forgotten that magical sense of awe that comes with looking. We've forgotten how to face our reflections, not with judgment or fear, but with a sense of joyful discovery, a sense of hope, a sense of wonder. We can see our reflections anywhere, Yet somehow we still face the mirror with a certain amount of suspicion, as though desiring the knowledge of how the world sees us is somehow wrong. So I invite you, the next time you look in a mirror or walk by your reflection, to pause and think of the magic. Think of the thousands and thousands of women who have looked at their reflections before you whose energy could even still be trapped in that beautiful piece of glass and know that their desires are still there and living within you and that your desires are here and accessible to you if you just believe. Remember to love yourself and to look in that mirror with joy, optimism, and the sense of wonder that comes with just a little bit of extra woo. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Things That Make You Go Woo. You can help me out by leaving a positive rating and a review wherever you downloaded this episode. Be sure and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Emily and Her Stars. You can also reach out via email anytime, emilyandherstars at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Things That Make You Go Woo.